Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be with you. It was nice to have that prelude music as we, as we came in this morning, wasn't it? It's uh, so good to, to be with you this morning and to go over lesson five this morning. Lesson five is guidelines for handling questions and objections in evangelism. So hopefully you're ready this morning and um, this is our Grace Evangelism series if this is your first time with us this morning. And um, we'll be, we're going through the curriculum that we have. And if you have it, great. If not, it's completely fine. And just as a heads up, uh, January 7th, we're gonna begin just a six week study in Proverbs, six weeks beginning in January 7th. So we have that to look forward to uh, as well. So it's so good to be with you this morning and um, I trust that you've had a good week and if you haven't, um, I trust that you're very glad to be here this morning just as, as I am. It's just so sweet to, for the church to gather together and to exalt the name of our Savior. So with that, let's pray and we'll jump right in since we are uh, starting a little bit late here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for uh, sustaining us and carrying us this past week through uh, trials and tribulations, um, through the, the, the light and the darkness, Lord. Thank you for your kindness towards us in Christ, for your sovereignty, for your goodness, for your grace that is greater than all of our sin, which we'll, we will be exalting in this morning in you, Jesus. Oh, Lord, grant to us um, a sweet time of, of understanding uh, these questions and the, these objections which we encounter when we um, evangelize the lost, when we um, have these discussions with, with unbelievers about that which matters the most, and that is your son, that is the gospel. So grant to us understanding according to your word, and may this time be of great help for all of us. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so we start with number one, and hopefully you have your, if you have your, your handouts, your, your, your books, you can walk through this, and hopefully on our, our PowerPoint this morning, hopefully we have all of the right answers. They should be all, all there, okay? Uh, just shout if you're like, you're off on number two, number three, just, just shout at me if it, if it happens to be off a little bit, okay? But number one is the believer's handling objections, handling objections to the gospel. And letter A is we must remember the authority of scripture. This is number one, always, always in evangelism. Please remember the authority of the scriptures, not of you, not of the pastor, not of the apologist, the authority lies in the scriptures alone. Someone please, with that truth in mind, someone please quote 2 Timothy 3.16. You can throw 17 in there as well if you'd like, but someone quote 2 Timothy 3.16 for us. That's right. Yes, absolutely. That's right, yeah, it's 17 as well. Bonus, perfect, perfect. All scripture is theonoustos. It is God-breathed. Therefore, that's where the authority lies. Now, in the heat of the moment with evangelism, you're talking to that individual. It's easy to jump down a rabbit trail, isn't it? Uh, engaging in arguments about peripheral matters, everything from evolution to moral relativism, etc. 
But what we must always remember is that scripture is our sole infallible authority. And it's only by the power of the word of God that life can come. It's the truth of the gospel by the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about in a moment here, that we are enlightened to the truth of the gospel. How were you saved? James 1:18. we are brought forth by the word of truth. Not by anyone's wow and pizzazz of, of, of apologetics, and that is good, and we'll talk about that more, but it's by the word of truth that we were brought forth, that we were given life, James 1.18. And 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25 essentially says, you were born again, how? By the living and enduring word of God. That's how you were born again. That's how you were given life. 1 Peter 2, 1, 23 to 25, excuse me. Letter B, we need to evaluate the question the question that is brought forth to us as we're, as we're speaking with that individual, we have to ask, is it essential to the gospel? If it is essential, then address it. Talk to it. Is it a non-essential question that is brought up? Then you have to, we have to ask ourselves these, these questions, okay? First, will the unbeliever accept the answer or derail the conversation. Have you ever been there before when you're speaking with someone? They're either gonna accept it and you're gonna move on in your gospel presentation or it's gonna derail the conversation. And number two, you have to ask yourself, can I answer the question or will I need to answer the question later? Can I answer the question now or will I need to answer the question later? If their question distracts you and I from the gospel, then we need to kindly say something along the lines of, I, let me come back to that later, <laughs> okay? L- l- let, me, let me get back to that. And, and if you do say that, <laughs> make sure you write it down. Make sure you write down that question that they have and, and don't forget to answer it, at least at some point before the end of that conversation, okay? You wanna, wanna be faithful to that as well, okay? So evaluate the question that they might ask in your gospel presentation there. Letter C, do not invent an answer. Do not invent an answer. I am guilty of doing this in my early years. Right on the spot and you're like, well, I gotta give them an answer. I gotta give give them something good. Don't invent an answer because you end up lying (laughs) and you're not being faithful to the truth there right? I can't tell you how many times I've done that in my early years, and then I've gone back to, to do the research on, on what I gave to them, and I'm like, oh boy, I hope they don't look that one up. I was off on that one. So don't invent, invent an answer. If you don't have an answer, then you need to be honest and find an answer, right? It might be hard and humbling for us to, to do that, but you need to give the appropriate answer and say, <clears throat> I know this is hard for us, but you gotta say it, I don't know, <laughs> right? I don't know, but I'll find out and I'll get back to you. I, seriously, get their number, get their email, 
Did they ask some crazy question about the canonization of scripture and the Council of Trent and how that cross crosses over with Catholicism because of what happened in the Council of Trent? You go, whoa, okay, hold on. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me find the answer to that and I'll show you and I'll get it to you, okay? So don't, don't invent an answer. Now, now we come to the, the majority of our time together this morning in, in number two, suggested answers for common questions. And the first one is, and this one is, this one is really seems to be most common and especially most common in the counseling room as well, is how can I be certain of my salvation? The certainty of salvation. Here's the thing. We can't assure a person of his or her salvation. Okay? You just, you just can't. We have to be careful not to speak as if salvation is a result of a prayer prayed, right? Or a card signed or the walking of an aisle. Salvation is based on repentant faith, not performance of external actions. And the truth is, is we don't know a person's heart. As much as you and I think at times we do, we don't. We don't know a person's heart and we must not usurp the Holy Spirit's function and give false assurance on the basis of someone's verbal commitment. Why? Because all this does both for you and for them is it brings great confusion when fruit does not appear and sustained victory over sin never comes. That's all that that does. If you give someone false assurance and you say, oh yeah, you must be, yeah, you are, you are, you are, while they're living in a pattern of habitual sin and there's not continued victory over sin in their life, all that does is bring in confusion. First Samuel 16, seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, right? Proverbs 16, two, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Now here's the thing of it, okay? The parable of the soils shows us that we cannot know the condition of a person's heart by its initial response, right? Just read Mark 4. We cannot know the condition of a person's heart by its initial response, but only by the fruit of his life. That's Mark 4, 1 to 20. But we can assure a person of this, that if he repents, Christ will not turn him away, right? Scripture gives clear and undeniable proof of salvation and a new believer must look to these truths for assurance that we're gonna talk about here in just a moment, three of them, okay? If he doesn't, he'll continue to look back at an event that he had or a moment or a feeling or some action as a verification of his salvation. So the test of salvation comes from examining three facets of the repentant life that you'll see in your books. Number one, faith that obeys Christ and flees from sin. Faith that obeys Christ and flees from sin. Sin. The Christian will have a continued and sustained faith in the promises of God. I love 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 
The word of God performs its work in you who believe. Don't you love that? God's word will perform its work in you who, and we always have to preface this, we have to, who truly believe, right? Who truly believe. And, and one example of this faith that obeys Christ and flees sin is endurance through trials. That, that seems to be the big one, right? <laughs> the, the great example of this faith that obeys Christ and flees sin is endurance through trials. We have James 1, 2 to 4 there. The believer will grow in continuing it to be a joy when he's faced with trials. Why? Because it's for the testing of the endurance of his faith. And all it does is it sharpens us and it makes us stronger in Christ. You can also see 1 Corinthians 10, 13 on that point as well. But the true believer will begin to develop patterns of obedience as his relationship with Christ is cultivated and nurtured by consistent feeding on the word. You'll remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my word. You'll keep my commandments. You'll hold them close to you. You'll strive, you'll seek to be walking in them. He said that multiple times in the upper room in the night before his crucifixion. If you love me, you'll keep my word. First Peter 2, 2, I love it. Like newborn babies, this is what the Christian does. He longs for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So this leads us to another key facet of the repentant life. Number two, the presence of the fruit of the spirit. The presence of the fruit of the spirit in the believer's life. You'll see Matthew 5, 3 to 12 there. This is the, the Beatitudes, okay? This is the launching point of the Sermon of the Mount that Jesus gives to us. And just that section there in verses 3 to 12 is really the qualities of the true kingdom citizen. That's what it is. It's not a, a works-based salvation that it's speaking of here. If I got to do this, I got to do this. to be. No, it is the qualities of one who is a true kingdom citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 3 to 12. And then, of course, we see Galatians 5, 22 to 23, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So, as believers grow in Christ's likeness and apply the scriptures to their life, the Holy Spirit will produce fruit in keeping with repentance, just like John the Baptist said in Luke 3, 18. Sorry, verse eight, Luke 3, verse eight. You will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now these steps may be small at first, right? And may be slowed by sin, but sanctification will never be stalled completely. It'll never be stalled completely, okay? Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, right? And Philippians 2.13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is surety. 1 Thessalonians 5.23-24, this is one of my favorite doxologies in all of scripture. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
How's that going to happen? I really hope that happens. Well, okay, go to verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Will bring what to pass? Your whole process of sanctification, salvation, glory. He's going to bring it to pass. What a comfort. What a joy. So the believer will see a change in his attitudes and actions as he grows in Christ-likeness. And as Jesus said, the good tree will bear what? Good fruit, Matthew 7, 17. That's right. We cannot produce salvation. And so the fruit that the believer bears cannot be defective. If a person is saved, fruit will be present. And so, like hand and glove, the third facet of the repentant life, as we come to number three here, is the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, right? The Holy Spirit in the believer's life. We have Romans 8, 16 there, which says that his spirit testifies, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Absolutely incredible. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 essentially saying that our body is not our own, but our, we have a temple of the Holy Spirit in which the Holy Spirit resides and we are not our own. So the Holy Spirit takes up residence within the body of every believer and is actively involved in sanctification. By his very presence, he, John 16, comforts us, convicts us of sin and testifies. That is, he gives us resolute confidence that we are the children of God. Aren't you thankful for that this morning as we just pause and ponder that truth? And as you're speaking to that individual, you can confirm this by what God's word says regarding the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. John 6, 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. John 6, 47, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. So the Holy Spirit equals this, really, if we're boiling it down here. Belief plus bearing fruit. Belief and bearing fruit. The next common question you will hear is, letter B, what about those who have never heard the gospel, right? We've all probably heard that question before. What about the 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 aborigines, right? Um, what about the, the, the unreached people groups in islands and countries that, that have not heard the gospel yet, right? Well, first of all, everyone is guilty of breaking God's law, right? Romans 3, 23. Also, the penalty for sin does not change because of ignorance. Just see Romans 2 for that. Everyone is equally responsible before God, Romans 6, 23. And there is only one way to be saved. That is through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the fact is, is that all have rejected the knowledge of God, which is made clear both in creation and in conscience. Just see Romans 1 and 2 on that again. So, if the Holy Spirit begins working in the heart, God will sovereignly bring the gospel to them, will he not? 
If the Holy Spirit begins working in the heart, God will sovereignly bring the gospel to them. This is why we have the joy of missionary work, both near and far. Amen? And the question really is, is when, that's, when we're presented with that and you're, you're in your gospel presentation and you're pleading with them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and be saved, when that question comes up, really after explaining and talking through the justice of God and how all men are accountable and how creation preaches that there is a God and you go through all of that, the question really is this as you're face to face with them. It's not trying to give a a good enough answer so that they are satisfied with your answer. The question is, as you're speaking to them, will you repent of your sins and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Or will you continue in rebellion and disobedience that's really the question at the end of the day if that's the question that you're confronted with as you explain so much that's really the question that needs to be asked to them before you part ways letter c why does evil exist why does evil exist if god is so good and powerful why can't he stop evil well it's kind of funny because the, the, the problem of, of evil, that objection is actually a problem for the unbeliever, not the believer, right? Because they are admitting that there is such a thing as objective evil, right? And, and if this is the case, then they must also admit that there is also something called objective good if they believe that there is an objective evil, right? It, it kind of goes like this, three-step, three-step dance here. It's like, okay, if God and evil really exist, or if good, sorry, and evil really exist, then there must be a moral law, right? Okay, if there is a moral law, then there must be a moral law giver, right? And this moral law giver is the God of the Bible, That's where we see him. Therefore, if one denies that God exists, there's no basis for absolute morality, right? And without absolute morality, the unbeliever has no basis to even say that evil exists. So evil becomes merely what a particular person feels is subjectively unpleasant. That's basically it. So when we admit that the God of the Bible is who he says he is, we may define evil as 1 John 3, verse 4. The transgression of his law is sin. And so when we pause there and we think, okay, man's problems, every sickness, every disease, every crime, every war are the results of Sin. I was just having this conversation with my children last night before bed as we were pondering this. And, and the fact is, is that sin is present in the world because man chose to reject God's commands. Genesis 3, Romans 3, Romans 5. Evil exists as a result of man's rebellion against God. So, yes, 
God has the ability to eliminate evil, doesn't he? But to do that would require that he destroy every person since all have sinned. And since evil exists in the heart of every person, Jeremiah 17, 9, God's judgment would destroy how many of us? All of us. That's correct. It would bring us right back to the flood, save eight people, right? Genesis 6 to 8. Psalm 4 verses, uh, Psalm chapter 5, sorry, verses 4 to 5 basically says that evil cannot exist in the presence of God. Romans 6.23 says eternal death awaits all who do evil. So really we should just be stunned at the amazing common and divine grace of God at this very moment. Therefore, as we see here, is that man has to be reconciled to God in order to be forgiven and set free from the penalty of sin. And that is God's own answer to the problem of evil, right? He overcame evil by the sacrifice of his innocent son to deliver sinners from the evil to which they were enslaved. The unbeliever, therefore, has no solution to the problem of evil, right? Because it's either random chance or some impotent deity, right? Yet, the God of the Bible has solved the problem of evil by providing forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. But, as 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. Letter D, in the end, everyone will be saved. It really doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have faith. We've all heard that perhaps, I would assume by now, but, but the fact is, is that faith is only is as good as its object, right? Faith is only as good as its object. Believing something sincerely doesn't make it right, right? Just as you can sincerely believe that you can fly doesn't make that true, right? So even the sincerest people can be sincerely wrong, right? Man isn't the ultimate authority here. We don't define what is right and wrong. Therefore, salvation is not a subjective reality because God is the creator and owner. He alone defines what is right and wrong. Just survey Isaiah chapters 40 to 48, and he makes that very clearly known there. I like how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, quote, as in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all others are wrong, end quote. So too, there is only one solution for man's dilemma, right? There is only one way by which we are saved. We see that in John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. So the fact is, is that all other religions amount to human attempt to work one's way to perfection, the goal is for man to refine himself and to make himself worthy of heaven. 
But the good news of forgiveness of sins by faith alone is in Christ alone. As he himself said that there is only one narrow gate and there are few who find it. Matthew chapter seven. Letter E, God will accept me because I'm a good person. He knows my heart and I have done a lot of good things. Perhaps you've heard this one before as well, but I'll just give us a quick uh, two-point pop quiz here and we'll see if we get it right. How many times does someone need to steal something to rightly be called a thief? How many times? One time, yep. How many sins must a person commit to be a sinner? (laughs) One time, that's right. The smallest sin condemns a man eternally. Matthew 5, 21 to 30, Jesus even speaks there of just a thought, even if you have that thought, just, just that one thought is worthy of eternal judgment. James 2, 10, right? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of all. You break the window and there's a crack there. Well, it's just that crack. No, the whole window is broken. And even going further, you know, it's what, what amaze, should really amaze us is that he didn't just die for our sins, he died for our good deeds, <laughs> right? Because as Isaiah 64, 6 says, that every good deed is worthless before a holy God. <laughs> it's incredible. So God does know your heart and his commentary on the heart uh, is not optimistic, <laughs> Right? Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So the bottom line is since all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, no one will be saved by his good works or well-meaning intentions. Right? Only by the finished work of Christ. Letter F, isn't the Bible full of errors? Aren't the scriptures full of errors? Ask the believer at that point, or the, the, the unbeliever at that point, to point out a specific error in their Bible. Just, just ask them to do that. And, and usually they, they can't, okay? Um, usually they have to Google uh, a certain list that someone has made up and posted. And you can find a lot there, believe me. But the, the, the point is this. We must remember that the Bible was written approximately by 40 different authors over a period of approximately 1,500 years. Each writer wrote with a different style, from a different perspective, to a different audience for a different purpose. So we should expect some minor differences throughout the scriptures. However, this is key. A difference is not a contradiction to what God is saying within the scriptures. A difference is not a contradiction. It is only an error if there is absolutely no conceivable way that the verses or passages can be reconciled, right? Many have found a supposed error in the Bible in relation to 
to history or geography only to find out that the Bible is correct once further archaeological evidence is discovered. Happens time and time again, and it's public news. So that's pretty cool. It's pretty comforting for the believer. But that's what it does for the believer. It, it excites us. It gives us that confirmation upon confirmation that we don't need, but is given to us by these things that are made evident. So the fact is, the Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. The Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. I love Proverbs 30, verse 5. Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God is tested. That is proven true through all the fire, time and time again. Every word of God is tested, proven, proven true. And I love this. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. How do we take refuge in him? By taking refuge in what his heart says in the scriptures about the sin of man, about how one is saved in Christ alone. I love Proverbs 18.30 as well on this point. It says, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So the Bible is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. At the end of the day, the Bible is God's word. Therefore, it's without error in its original manuscripts. 2 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, 2 Peter 1, 21 states that over and over again. So the Bible is self-authenticating and claims to be accurate because it is a product of the breath of God. How incredible is that? How thankful you and I should be this morning that we can lay what we're laying on our laps this morning or see what we see on a PowerPoint screen the very living word of God in our language. Absolutely stunning. It is by his word that we are born again. So the Bible is not full of errors. We see differences. We certainly do not see contradictions. Contradictions. I love that sometimes, you know, when you're reading with your, your children, they have their children's Bible and they're really reading it. My daughter several times has come up to me and said, look at this. This is, this is a misspelling in the scriptures. And you'll see it in the English and it'll be like one letter that's like, it, it, it was off or it was a slight misspelling. Yeah, because man is imperfect. <laughs> and, and when we, from, from language to language, but that's not the same as the original manuscripts. And did that little, that one little S that shouldn't be there or that comma that shouldn't be there, does that mess up the, the true message and meaning of the scriptures? No, it doesn't, not in the slightest. So this brings us to G. I don't believe that God exists. Now that's, this is a fun one. I love this one. I don't believe that God exists. Because why? It, it comes to this. Man's problem is not intellectual. Right? It, it's not intellectual, it's moral. It's a moral problem. Man is not lacking information, certainly not lacking information in which we live today. Romans 1 shows us that all people know God exists. All people. Creation alone is enough to render man without excuse, right? Creation, God preaches in creation second by second, moment by moment. Man is without excuse just by creation. Read Romans 1.20 on that. 
You can see Genesis 1-3 in creation. John 1-3, Jesus created all things. Colossians 1.16, Jesus created and sustains all things. Hebrews 1.2 and Psalm 19. I love Psalm 19. You have the first half of that Psalm being God preaching through creation. And then the last half, you see God preaching through his word and both prove that he exists and he is there. And so aside from the testimony of creation and the work of God's law, the work of God's law is inscribed on man's conscience. It goes even further. Isn't that crazy? It is inscribed on man's conscience. Read Romans 2, verses 14 to 15. Unsaved man rejects this evidence in his conscience, in his being, and suppresses it under layer upon layer of his sin. Romans 1, 18. The unbeliever suppresses the truth of God in their, by their unrighteousness. Therefore, the answer is not more evidence to them. It's like, it's like let's give more light to a blind man. Will that help? <laughs> no, it doesn't. But our response to the objection of God must always be to appeal to the knowledge of God that is written on the unbeliever's heart. It's there, it's there. And one of the number one ways Jesus spoke to the Pharisees was by asking questions. You know that there are over 300 times in the Gospels that Jesus teaches and especially starts a, a message by a question? Over 300 times. Asking questions was Jesus' central way of his life and teachings. So how fitting is it for us in evangelism to ask questions to probe the unbeliever's worldview? It's very helpful for yourselves as well to just step back and ask those questions, especially to more and more see where they're at in their thinking. How can you prove God doesn't exist? Right, just ask him that. How can you prove that he does not exist, right? How do you account for the earth? And we're not gonna to go to the flat earth conversation here either, but how do you account for the earth? Who sets the standard for right and wrong? Whose name do you curse and who do you cry out to during an earthquake or a tornado? We must challenge in love the unsaved person's reasons for denying God's existence. Why do you say there is no God? Why do you say that? You can't prove that he doesn't exist, so why do you make that claim? Then we can get a little deeper (laughs) and ask, is it because you don't want his laws to govern your life? Do you want to define what is right and wrong? And if they're going to answer honestly, it's going to be yes to those last two questions. So the burden of proof for the absence of God is with the unbeliever. The burden of proof is with them. God's existence is demonstrated by the fact that without him, there's no explanation for anything that exists. Without him, we cannot explain the existence of the universe or defend why it's wrong to murder or steal. Who defines absolute morality if there is no absolute lawgiver? 
When someone says, I don't believe in God, therefore he doesn't exist, is like someone saying, I don't believe in gravity, so I can jump off a cliff and not fall. No, gravity exists, whether we believe in it or not, and so does God. So when someone talks this way, they are claiming, really what they're doing, is they're claiming ultimate authority, unbeknownst to them, perhaps. Help them understand that. You're, You're claiming absolute authority here, and that your authority is above God's. It's above the scriptures that are tried and tested and proven. They're claiming ultimate authority. And when one does this, we know what the scripture says. Psalm 14 verse 1 says that the person who says that there is no God is a, a fool. A fool is said in his heart, there is no God. So the more you probe the unbeliever with, with questions, trying to find out what reasons he gives for God's non-existence, the more you'll see he simply refuses to recognize God because he doesn't want to obey his law. At the end of the day, that's what it comes to. If, if he believes God exists, then he must submit to God. Romans 1, 18 to 20 again, describes the state of every unsaved person. So you got to get to the heart of it. You got to get to the heart of it and asking those questions to them because at the end of the day, it's really they want to be the ultimate authority on life and morality. Letter H, we cannot really know what happens when we die. We just can't know what happens when we die. Well, to make the claim that nobody can know about something (laughs) requires the kind of absolute knowledge and certainty that this objection is designed to reject right? How does the unbeliever know that we cannot know, right? Have they exhausted every bit of information that can be known in the universe? Kindly inform them, kindly inform them that they cannot know what human beings can and cannot know. It's that simple. It's really that simple. So again, we must penetrate beneath the surface. We must move from philosophy to the heart by asking the unbeliever, really, let's get to the point here, okay? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of death? And the scriptures say time and time again is that the truth is, is man is. Man is. And last time I checked, the Bible is very specific about what happens after death, right? It's either heaven or hell. There's no in-between, there's no purgatory. We don't invent our own concept of eternity. But time and time again, college campuses, places everywhere, people are making up their own destinations. Comfortably so, it seems. And they're just so comfortable, and it's just with ease, they say it. Some claim annihilation, that is, All are just eternally dead. There's no conscious afterlife. Just see Hebrews 9.27 as Pastor Dusty preached on that about a month and a half ago. It is appointed unto man once to die, but then judgment. Some claim universalism, right? That, That all are in heaven 
and there's no hell. Just see Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46. Really, Matthew 23 to 25, it's that where, he, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the judgment that is to come and the woes upon them, where he explains that there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth, and this is outer darkness where the worm never dies, eternal conscientious torment, universalism, all are in heaven. No. Some say, I just don't believe in heaven. Again, take them to Matthew. Take them to Matthew to chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 5, verse 16, verse 18. Really all throughout the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of heaven. That is his and that is to come. And others say they don't believe in hell. Again, take them to Matthew 25 and, and 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9 is a, quite a sobering text on that point, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 to 9. So all these statements that they make are, are attempts to escape reality, really, and claim nothing definitive about the afterlife. They are made up arguments to escape God and to escape judgment. They are self-defeating arguments that they put forth. But we have the answers, don't we? <laughs> We have the answers in the word of God. Be faithful to take them to it. Sh show it to them. If you have your Bible, open it up, show it to them. If you have it on your phone, scroll down, show it to them. I think we get so comfortable sometimes in these kind of talks with unbelievers and sometimes even among believers where we can talk, 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 but we're not opening our Bibles. <laughs> we're not confirming to see if these things are so. Kindly, loving them, lovingly, show, show them what the scriptures say. Letter I, Christians are hypocrites. Forgiveness is simply an excuse for sin. Now, I know you've, you've probably heard this before, okay? You, you've probably been called this before, perhaps. Christians are hypocrites. Forgiveness is simply an excuse for sin. Let's clear something up here as we start to wrap up our time. Jesus never called his disciples, his true followers, hypocrites. Do you know that? Nowhere in the scriptures does Jesus call his true followers hypocrites. He called them babes. He called them sheep. He called them sons and daughters. He called them the church. We could go on. Because the word hypocrite means play acting pretense to play a part and literally if you get down to the really root of the word it simply means to wear a mask you're a complete fake you're you are you are meaning to put on a show for your whatever purposes that you might have that's what a hypocrite is here's the thing there are many who claim to be christians and are not Matthew 7, 21. Remember, many of them on that day say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And the Lord Jesus is gonna say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. So what's the test of a true Christian? It goes back to what we talked about earlier. Does he or she obey Christ? And if we love Christ, we will obey him. No, not perfectly. But because you don't obey him perfectly doesn't make you a hypocrite. <laughs> make sense? 
A hypocrite is, is meaning to put on that mask. It, 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 it's every time Jesus used the word hypocrite in the scriptures, who was he talking to? He was talking to the Pharisees. That's who he was talking to. That's very important to know. So if we love Christ, we will obey him. 1 John 5, 3, John 14, 15. And the true test of a Christian is, again, a changed life. Not the claims that he makes, but a changed life. 1 John 3, 18. And Romans chapter 6 is clear that salvation is not a license to sin. Salvation is not a license to sin. Rather, it's a continual turning from sin to the obedience of Christ, right? Paul says, shall we sin that grace may increase? Never. No. That's the heart of a Christian. Psalm 97 verse 10, the Christian hates evil, hates sin, and loves the Savior. So ultimately, regardless of how imperfectly a professing believer follows Christ. God is our standard of perfection, not the Christian. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> it's not you, it's not me. The standard is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we're in Christ, we will be hating sin, loving, loving the Savior and growing in obedience and love and adoration for the Savior and for the lost. And for the lost. Now, we have a couple few, few minutes to spare. Those are some key objections and questions that you and I indeed face in the Christian life, right? Perhaps it was some of the questions that you asked before you were saved, right? And if you're here this morning, you know that the word of God is what brought you to life, that Christ himself by his spirit through the gospel brought you to life, you know that. But with all that said, what are some other, if you have, perhaps maybe questions about what we went over this morning, or are there any other, if you want to play devil's advocate this morning, are there any other objections or questions to the gospel that you might have this morning that we can talk through, that you can throw a question out and we can talk about it? Anything else that we missed? Yeah. 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 That it's not what? Not fruitful. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yep. I, you know, uh, personally, in, in my own life, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like I, I kind of use baseball as my um, guideline. One, two, three, it's, it's you're done, you know? Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah, so what she was asking was if you're talking with someone and it seems not to be fruitful and they just keep asking different questions and they're not receiving what you're saying, at what point do you just stop and, and move on and, and say goodbye? Um, it, it's really, I, yeah, because you don't want to provoke them either. Um, you're there to give the gospel. <laughs> you're to, there to show them Christ. Um, and if they're not receiving what you say, you can kindly give a once, twice, maybe take a different turn on the conversation. Um, but it, it's really, once it gets to second or third time and they're just, they're done, 
then I think it's time to move on and to not forget to pray for them. Yeah. 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 Yep, yep. But not only interpretation, but the 13 added books that the Roman Catholic Church has added to their Bible. And when you add those to it, they do not line up. Because within those 13 added books has work salvation clearly laden in it. So, so that makes it that makes the answer to that question even easier, but that will mess up the interpretation because just you're taking one verse here out of context and one verse here, and then it supports works salvation, works righteousness. So um, as far as authority, the authority comes by, by what does the scriptures say? And can you synergize and connect Genesis to Revelation regarding whatever's being taught, if it's about man, if it's about God, if it's about sin, why is there a contradiction? Or are you, you, the word was interpretation, right? Yeah, and seeing what the scriptures say. So um, the scriptures are already laid out for us. You take the scriptures at face value of what it says, right? Literally, when it's literal, and then where are, when there are times, and there are times where there's a, a simile or there's a, there's a parable to understand a point that Jesus was making, you understand it in that light, right? Or Song of Solomon in that poetic light instead of literal here. But when the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Most of them claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. But where, we, where might we go if, if they say that Jesus never claimed to be God? Where might, yeah. Yeah, right. 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 Yep. Right. Right, that's right. Amen. Thank you, Rod. Thank you. Yes, amen. And back to, to yeah, real quickly, just back to what, what you had said, Nathan. Um, I would say go to John chapter 6, John chapter 10. Those are key texts. Um, and then you can go on to the, what the apostles said in Ephesians, Colossians. It's, it's clear. I, I and the Father are one, the, the equality of, of God um, with the Lord Jesus. So John 6, John 10 are good spots to, to begin. Who is...
They're looking for what? A sign. Yeah. Yep. 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 The Lord Jesus said that of the, of the Jews and the Greeks, some seek for, for signs. Some seek for miracles, right? Others, wisdom. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? This is what they're seeking for, right? But he says, I came to you not in persuasive speech. I didn't come to you with any, any signs in the sky or anything like that. I came to you preaching the gospel, the word, right? So yeah, there, there are many who, who look for a sign, but we are looking for a savior and the savior has come and he's given us his word and yet we still don't believe. We, we are, we are, we are, does that make sense? We're faced time and time again with proof upon proof upon proof. It ultimately comes down to we are dead in our sins and transgressions apart from the Lord Jesus Christ giving life to us. So yeah, many look for a sign in the sky or, or a, a liver shiver, a feeling uh, in order to, to believe. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. It's already there. Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Yeah, Romans for proof of existence for God, both in creation and his word. His word. What else? Any, anything else? Any other questions? Or is it, yeah. Mm. Amen. Amen. Isn't, isn't that what we're to be doing? Th- this is all we have. We hold forth the word. N- not our own intellect or philosophy. This, this is it. Don't you want this savior? <sighs> but that's, that's how deep, that's how serious sin is. We don't get it. <laughs> Dead. Blinded. Right? So lest the light of the glorious gospel shines through they will not believe. Joseph, yeah. Mm. Yeah, amen. Mm. Yeah. Whew. Amen. That, that's a hard one for a lot of us, I think, right? I don't know about you, but I have the, part of the weakness of my flesh is, is I want to just keep going. I want to show them scripture after scripture. I want to keep showing proof after proof and just use all the apologetics that I possibly can gush out. And that's not good. That's not, that's not always a good thing. It's, it's, it's back to what you said. Letting the word sit, pray for them, because as Paul told us, 1 Corinthians, some plant, some water, Who's the one who grants the increase? God is the one who grants the increase, right? The sufficiency of the word of God alone. So with that, um, we're over time now. So I just want to remind you to review uh, your memory cards. Hopefully you have cards one through four memorized on God, on man, on Christ, on sinners. I'm going to call on someone now who has it perfectly memorized. Just kidding. We won't do that. But please be, those are so helpful. They're core, they're clear, they're so helpful in getting that conversation started. Have memory cards one to four memorized. And I just wanna encourage you to, if you haven't already, to 
to read or be reading What is the Gospel by Greg Gilbert, okay? Um, it's a great, helpful, helpful tool there. And I just want to continue to remind us and encourage us all to be faithfully praying for the unbelievers on, on our list that we should have from the, from the beginning when, when this class started. Please be praying for them daily, nightly, and know that if God can save you <laughs> and me, he can save them as well. So uh, with that, let's be encouraged by the word of God this morning. Let's prepare our hearts for our second hour together this morning. And yes, Pastor Dusty will be here this morning. No, he will not be leading us in worship, but he'll be leading us in the preaching and teaching of God's word. So thankful for the Lord restoring him through, through that time, that rough time that he's had this past week. So let's pray together as we conclude. Oh, Father, help us to be faithful and unashamed in the proclamation of your sufficient word which has saved us. Uh, knowing, Lord, that, that we plant and water, but you indeed are the one who, who brings salvation. Uh, Lord, you give sight to the blind. You give life to the dead. And so, Lord, grant, grant us uh, a humble confidence um, and, and wisdom Lord, by your word and a true love and concern for the lost as we encounter these kinds of objections and questions that we've, we've addressed this morning. And Lord, if there be any receptivity of your word, of the gospel given to the lost in our encounters, Lord, then, then not unto us, Lord, not unto us, but to your name be the glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. So we thank you for your son. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Would you be exalted in her and by her this morning? In your name we pray, amen.